You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Good morning. Today's reading is from the book of Acts. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. It's from chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated and the kids can be dismissed to their classes. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here of the village. I don't normally get to do this, but uh, here I am. So you're stuck listening to me for a few minutes. Um, Would you join me in prayer before we even get started this morning? Uh, God, we thank you for this morning. Um, We ask you for your help uh, as people who, wherever we are uh, in life, wherever you have us, Lord, um, wherever our hearts are, our minds, whatever they're set on today, uh, however our our morning has gone thus far, who have hurts and sorrows and joys and hopes and fears. um, God, I just pray that as as real as those things are, uh, that you would allow us to be seen by you this morning, um, that we wouldn't have to cover up anything or feel like we have to be someone different today, that you might love us, that we might know your love for us in Jesus And we ask that you would make him real for us today, that we might know your love and your grace and your affection and your forgiveness for us, that you might speak life to us, and we might leave here changed, encouraged, maybe with new life, uh, and maybe for just a renewed life in you today. We thank you for uh, these folks who have gathered. Pray that you would help us to have a, uh, a much better understanding of what fellowship is when we leave here today, that we might... Um, put your love and your grace and forgiveness on display for those who are in this room and for those that we encounter uh, outside these doors. God, we love you. Thanks for Jesus uh, and do your work in us today. That's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, some of you guys uh, might know that I, uh, I love taking pictures. Um, I'm not a photographer. Uh, I couldn't tell you how to work a DSLR or how to develop 35 millimeter film or any of those things, you hand me a fancy camera, I have absolutely no idea what to do with it, all right? Uh, I, I take pictures with my three-year-old smartphone, all right? And so uh, that being said, man, somebody once said that uh, the best camera is the one that you have with you, and so, man, I'm, I'm fine doing that. I love to take photos of, uh, man, just our, our family and candid moments throughout the day or wherever we might go, uh, whatever adventures that we might go on. Together, And so to give you an idea of, of what I mean by loving to take photos, um, my family and I recently went on a, a road trip uh, a couple weeks ago down to St. Augustine. And over the span of uh, eight days on the road, I took 1,268 pictures. Um, 
What could be so interesting, you might ask? I don't know. Uh, but I, I captured lots of moments, probably lots of moments many times over uh, and over again. At some point, I'll go through all those, and I'll make a little Google Photos album that's labeled, you know, hey, trip to St. Augustine 2021. Um, but as I have scrolled through uh, the endless list of photos uh, since we've been back, um, I've, I've noticed lots of moments that I, I remember freshly but did not bother to capture uh, in photographic form. And so, uh, for example, both times that I blinded our youngest daughter, Vera, uh, temporarily by, like, by slathering sunscreen just right in her eyes once, right before like, we went on a, a dolphin tour together. And so she's like the whole time like squinting and closing her eyes, and I didn't capture that moment uh, on film. When I made uh, one of our kids cry at the beach, uh, literally for no reason except that I was just being a jerk. I just made our kids cry at the beach. I didn't capture that moment. And, and put that there. Uh, every time I would get, like we'd drive into a city and try to find a place to park, I just would get irrationally stressed out because we're in this van in a new city. There's a thing on top that's, you know, clearance or whatever going into parking garages. I just get irrationally stressed out. I didn't capture those moments of me begging for silence in the van as we're driving so daddy can focus on what's in front of him. I didn't capture those candid moments didn't think to preserve them once in the 1,200 plus pictures that I have on my camera phone because, honestly, I don't want to remember those, <laughs> right? I don't want to remember those. I don't want Google to remind me in a year, like, hey, look at, look at what you're doing one year later, and it's me losing my mind over a kid kicking sand too close to a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Like, that's what it would have, that's what it would have reminded me of. And when I think of myself and my family, I want to remember something much more polished, Right? I want my memories handpicked. I want the images to show the best version of myself and my family. And yet God, despite being perfect, is far more honest than I am about the images of himself and his family that float around the world for everybody to see. Namely, you and me, the image bearers of God, and especially his family, the church. Because he, he has framed uh, the less than, than flattering moments that his people have done throughout history in the scriptures, right, for all people to see. Uh, in our series focal passage that, uh, that Bailey read for us this morning, Acts 2, 42 through 47, we see the, the quintessential family photo of the early church. It's all great, right? It's, it's the kind of shot that you put on a Christmas card or it's your Facebook cover, you know, photo on your profile or whatever. Uh, the picture is picturesque. And yet, it's, it's real. It's very real. The people are real. Those affections are real. Those actions are real. Acts 2 is not a staged photo. It's not, it's not Photoshop in some way. It's a candid shot that simply captures the kind of fellowship that we long for in a family. And that by the Spirit, we can actually have in a church family. And so, when we read Acts 2, it seems easy to think about devoting ourselves to a fellowship like that. But, but this picture isn't the only picture that we have of that fellowship in the album, even of just the book of Acts. Right? Two chapters later, Peter and John are arrested. In the next chapter, church members lie about their finances, and then they, they drop dead. In the next chapter, uh, Christians uh, in charge of serving widows, are, are openly exposed for discriminating against some of them. In the next chapter, one of the church's newly installed deacons is stoned to death. 
in the next chapter, a, a witch hunt breaks out. Christians have their doors broken into and they're drug out in the streets to be arrested or killed. And so let me ask you now, how eager are you to devote yourself to that kind of fellowship? How eager are you to, to, to want to put one of those moments on a Christmas card or to invite, uh, let's say, the, the lying church members? Do you want to invite them over to break bread for dinner? Or do you want to go grab coffee uh, with the people who are openly discriminating against poor widows because they're not, not Jewish enough for their daily allotment of bread? Do you want to uh, play a, a game of ultimate frisbee for some sweet time of Christian fellowship with any of those people? The answer is probably not, if you're honest with yourself. But here's the kicker. The same fellowship in Acts 2 is the same fellowship in all the other chapters as well. Right? It's the same album. It's the same people in the same pictures. Right? It's just different snapshots, different angles that provide an equally honest look at who they really are. Both the good and the bad and the ugly. The Acts 2 church is the Acts 4 church and the Acts 5 church in 6 and 7 and 8 church. God's honest about who these folks really were. So why in the world would anyone want to devote themselves to people like that? And if we're honest, people like you and me. Devotion to this kind of fellowship is the second mark of gospel community that we're going to see in Acts 2, 42 through 47. And so that's what we're going to explore today. Um, And we're going to do that uh, as part of our series called Life Together by looking at 1 John 1 through 2, a letter that that the uh, Apostle John wrote. And in that letter, he exposes uh, some ways that we all too often settle for a counterfeit version of Christian community, often by tricking ourselves into believing that the real church is the perfectly polished one, the one that ironically doesn't actually know its need for God or his grace. And so our main idea this morning is that the gospel alone can rescue us from counterfeit community. All right, so uh, if you would, uh, flip to 1 John 1, 1 through 4. We would love to send you home with one uh, as a gift for you as you're turning there. I just want to give you a little uh, background on who John is writing this letter to because it directly connects with kind of what we're talking about today. John's writing this letter to Jewish Christians who have been disfellowshipped on two different fronts. First, they've been kicked out of their synagogues, all because that they believe that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, and the leaders of those synagogues didn't. So they, they lost their community. They were ostracized from the place uh, and the people where they'd experienced probably so much of their life, maybe their whole life, worship, uh, right, um, mourning and celebrating, think about milestones, marriages, deaths, births, all those things now just kind of gone. And then second, some of these Jewish Christians who were, who were kicked out of the synagogues with them uh, because of Jesus were now slowly but surely starting to turn their backs on them and on Jesus just so they could be accepted back into their synagogue. So imagine how hard it would be to be kicked out of a place like that in the first place. And I know that some of you can because that's some of your stories And then if you can imagine how much more difficult it would be to have the folks that you thought were in it with you then also kick you to the curb and go back, that's tough. That'll leave scars 
that'll call into question what, what they're even doing. Like, what are we even doing here? Is this thing even true? And even if it is true, if this thing is real, is it really worth all of this? I, I just want my community back, my fellowship back. And all I have to do to get back is just drop this whole Jesus thing, right? This is John's audience, the people who have been experiencing probably the exact opposite of what we see in Acts 2. And so uh, let's see what he starts his letter with. This is John, uh, 1 John 1, 1 through 4. That which was looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. Do you hear what John is hammering home over and over again in this? He's saying that Jesus is real. He's been around since the beginning. He was in heaven with the Father. He showed up here in flesh and blood as a human like you and me, and he's still alive with an eternal life that we've told you about. We've heard him with our own ears. We've seen him with our own eyes. We've touched him with our own hands. This Jesus that everyone around you is calling you crazy and even cutting you out of their life for believing is real. And this might seem like a a weird place to start a letter about fellowship, but that's only true if we believe fellowship can come from, from anything else except a very real, a very alive, a very personal Jesus. And this is actually the first and biggest lie, uh, the first root of counterfeit community is that, that we don't need Jesus to actually enjoy it. And so our first point this morning is this, that the gospel alone is the door to fellowship. All right, that's our first point this morning. Look, you might have... You might have deep friendships with folks who aren't Christians, and I hope that you do. You, you should. Jesus did, right? There are situations where Kelly and I, my wife and I, we genuinely feel sometimes more comfortable with non-Christians than Christians sometimes. But, but being friends with someone or being comfortable in a group of people uh, isn't the same thing as having fellowship with a brother or a sister in Christ. Uh, let's clarify that a little bit. Um, fellowship is not the entire cast of friends constantly hanging out in a coffee shop at all hours of the day as if no one has any jobs or responsibilities or anything else to do at all in life but hang out together. Fellowship isn't experiencing some like real life sitcom where folks do everything together, uh, experience some zany antics, maybe experience a little bit of drama and then everything goes back to normal at the end of the episode. It's not some new level of fun or some achievement that you unlock once you find all the right BFFs to fit into your friend group, all right? Fellowship, by definition, is a deep participation in a shared life in Christ. In the Greek, the word koinonia, which we translate as fellowship, literally means sharing or participation, and it's used in a variety of ways in the New Testament, in Romans 15, social relief of the poor in another city. In Philippians 3, it refers to sharing in the suffering of someone else, Jesus. In Galatians 2, it refers to James and John and Peter shaking hands with Paul 
as new partners in gospel ministry. Paul, who they had only just met, but who they had heard about because he was famous for arresting and killing Christians. The guy who was actually spearheading the whole breaking down the doors and dragging people out thing, right? But when they perceived the grace that was given to me, writes Paul, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. See, none of this requires anyone to be BFFs or to have mutual hobbies or like the same movies, to know each other for a long time or to stay in the same city forever. This kind of fellowship is deeper than just simple common interests. Um, we've got five kids. Kelly and I have, have five kids. The last two were twins. All right, so we got like a, a buy one, get one uh, kind of deal there. Um, so three times, not four, but three times since we've been parents, uh, we've introduced our kids to their new siblings, however many of them there were at the time. Um, and even though they had never laid eyes on one another before, I didn't know their personality, didn't know the toys that they would like to play with, whether they were good at sharing uh, or, or waiting their turn or what have you. Before any of that, we, we brought them into the room and said, Mabel, this is Holden, your brother. Holden, this is Vera, your sister. Vera, this is, this is Kerrigan, this is Joshua. These are your brothers. We didn't ask them if they wanted to be siblings. We didn't take a vote. There was no vetting process at all in this. We simply declared it, right, and it was so. And from then on until forever, whether or not they would have picked each other uh, as friends on the, the playground or in the cafeteria, man, they would share a life and a family not of their own choosing, and yet in every way their own. And, and this is how friendship and fellowship are, are different, where fellowship is formed when God says, she is one of mine forever. Son, meet your new sister. Daughter, meet your new brother. Fellowship is, is God-ordained. It's, it's as unbreakable as the grace that, that brings us into the family of God. Christian, do you know that you're part of something like that? Non-Christian, do, do, do you want to be part of something like that? I, I think that you would, right? If you do, you don't have to win our approval or anyone else's approval. You only have to believe that Jesus has won God's approval for you already, that he lived the perfect life that none of us ever could, that he died the death on the cross under judgment that we deserve for our sin, and he came back to life defeating death itself, something that we could never do on our own, and he did it all in your place, not merely to save you and to call you his, to adopt you as, as his son or daughter. To be part of the fellowship of God's people isn't to prove your devotion to it, but to know Jesus' devotion to you and to his people first. So in devoting ourselves to the fellowship, we're not devoting ourselves to, to anyone that, that God hasn't already gone to the grave for, all right? We, we get to be devoted to the people that God has already devoted himself to. We're not, we're not picking up God's slack, all right? What we, are, we are pouring out and sharing our life with the people that God has already poured his life out for, and that's a, that's a beautiful thing. And so this is where those of us who are Christians here with us this morning, we have to ask ourselves, do we live like that's true? Are we devoted to this fellowship that way, to, to the local church this way? Do we gather with the saints that we might share our life, and, but because of a common Jesus? Is our assessment 
of someone's belonging based on something other than the gospel? Is it based on something else? Do you think some folks would better belong elsewhere? If God has called someone in, why, why would you not want to pull up a chair for them at the table? See, we get to pick our friends. We don't get to pick our fellowship. When, when John writes that I've proclaimed Jesus to you, you ostracized, hurting, disfellowshipped Christians, he's saying that he's done that. He's proclaimed Jesus to you so that you can have fellowship with us. When he writes that, he's writing that to them and for us today that, that we might know that in Christ we belong, that you belong, that you are one of us because you are one of his. Not because we've said it, but because he has. Not because you've proven your radical devotion to us, but you know his radical devotion to you and to all who are his. And when God's people live like that, man, our joy is made complete, which is exactly why John is writing this letter. The gospel is the only door to genuine fellowship. Jesus is real, and thankfully, the people that he invites to walk through that door uh, are, are also real people, too. We get to be real people with him, and, and we'll unpack that in the next chunk of our passage this morning. We're going to look at First John 1, uh, 5 through 2, 2. Not 2, 2, but chapter 2, verse 2. This is what he writes. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie, and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth isn't in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is our second point this morning, that the gospel alone makes room for confession. That's point number two this morning. Um, man, I love how John, uh, like, I'm, I'm writing this to you so that you don't sin, but also, if you say you haven't sinned, you're a liar, right? It's, it's a little crazy, but I love John for it because it's, it's real life. Uh, rewind back to the day that I, I was a jerk and made our kids cry at the beach. Um, I knew in the moment as the words were flying out of my mouth, <laughs> that what I was saying was just me. Like, no one had to tell me that I was being selfish or petty or that I was sinning in my anger. I, I shouldn't be saying this, I'm telling myself, and yet the words just fly out anyway. That's, that's real life. I know I'm not up here as if I'm the only one who's ever experienced that before, right? Y'all are like, yeah, that's really bad. You just probably did that this morning, Right? My, uh, my, if anyone does sin, became a, well, I just did, you know, and that's terrible. But, but then there's after the words come out, when, when I'm done, shut up, quiet, and so is everyone else, kids just kind of silently chewing on their peanut butter and, and jelly sandwiches on a, a beach towel, and it's that moment when guilt and shame and pride and self-righteousness just wash over me, and their voices just have a field day with my soul 
in there. What kind of dad does be ashamed of yourself? Just ruined the whole dang day. Or the other voices, well, gosh, you, you should have been mad. They should have known better, right? What do they expect me to do when they're being crazy on the beach? You know, playing with sand. <laughs> How dare they? The, those voices all competing to be the loudest and the most decisive voice in answering the question, well, now what? And that's real life stuff. But in Christ, there's a, another more authoritative voice that we have, but the Holy Spirit, who echoes John's words here, my little children, John writes to grown adults, right, like you and me, I'm, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, he's the propitiation, the, the satisfying sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Even before I remembered those words, even while stuff was flying out of my mouth, Jesus had already taken my sin to the cross, left it in his grave, and had already begun pleading my case before the Father. And if there was any doubt as to what God might say in response, John clears it right up. He says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Faithful and just. God's faithfulness to us in the gospel is forgiveness. God's justice now in light of the gospel is forgiveness. Forgiveness that's always there, waiting for us to come and drink from it anytime we find ourselves in need of mercy. And it's, it's this fountain of grace from a, a very real Jesus that gives very real people like you and me all the freedom in the world to confess when the sin we know we shouldn't do is the, the very thing that shame or pride and self-righteousness win the day, but to remember and believe that Jesus won already. By being honest with the Lord, and for me on that day, on the beach with my kids and Kelp, to be honest with them, I apologized, told them I was wrong, that even if there was anything that they were doing that was remotely, genuinely frustrating, they're not responsible for me losing it. That's on me. That's not on them. See, living in light of the Lord's forgiveness frees us to ask others for theirs if and when they're ready to give it. I want this kind of confessional freedom to mark the relationships in my family and I, I want it to mark the relationships in our church family as well. Confession among us. It should be a welcome thing, celebrated even in our groups during response time at the end of gatherings when we meet up for coffee not because we're celebrating what's being confessed, right? But we're celebrating that we can confess without fear of condemnation. We can let ourselves be seen and known for who we really are and what we've really done because in Christ, we have a God who is not only devoted to us, but devoted to us in spite of who we are and in spite of what we've done. And, and we also ought to be devoted to one another, to our fellowship in that same way. But counterfeit communities don't live that way. They treat sin the way that, that some health insurance uh, companies treat like pre-existing conditions, right? That they just don't. E either, right? Yeah, sure, you can, you can join, all right? But that thing, that condition that you have, you know, we're, we're going to need you to pretend like that doesn't exist, all right? We're going to need you just to, to act like that's not a thing that you actually need to deal with. Or, or they'll just straight up deny you entry for having anything wrong at all. Or they'll kick you out of 
if they find out you maybe had something when you first joined that maybe you didn't even know about. John describes this kind of malpractice here in his letter. Fake fellowship is marked an impossible sin. I'm going to pack those here. If, if you say you've got fellowship, but you're walking in the dark, not letting yourself be seen, hiding sin, declaring certain parts of your life taboo that no one can see, speak into, weigh at all, then, then you're not practicing the truth, John says. You, you might know the truth of the gospel, but you're not living like it's true. Otherwise, you'd walk in the light because you know there's nothing but forgiveness to be found on the other side of confession. That's, that's undisclosed sin. Or, if you don't think there's any sin in you, if you're walking around thinking, gee, I'm, I'm really glad I don't need God's grace today. Feels really good. You know, maybe it's possible there's something in there, but I just, I can't think of anything where I might need his mercy or forgiveness today. If, if that's you, then John says that you're deceiving yourself and the truth isn't in you. If you are being honest with yourself and really letting God's truth hit you as it ought, man, then your need for God and his grace would be obvious. That's unassuming sin. Or, lastly, if you say that you haven't sinned, either you don't think you've ever done something that God might not approve of, or even if in conflicts or failure or whatever, you just can't even entertain the notion that something would ever be your fault. Right? Your, your default position is always one of innocence. Then, then you're not just lying to yourself. John says you're calling God a liar for having the audacity to say that you might actually need his grace as much as anyone else does. Or that you even really need it to begin with. Right? That's, that is impossible sin. If, if you gather a bunch of people <laughs> together who hide sin, who don't think that they have any, and who just can't even imagine being in sin, then, then you will form a fellowship that lives entirely in the dark or actually get to experience and enjoy the fountain of God's forgiveness. It'll, it'll never let itself taste the goodness of God's grace, and at some point, it will tear itself apart. It'll implode or it'll explode because it was never actually devoted to real people. It was only devoted to a, a fake photoshopped version of people who don't really exist. Sin is never good, all right? But unconfessed, unrepentant sin is a million times worse. We should be more afraid of keeping our sin hidden than letting it be exposed because we should long to taste forgiveness more than keeping up the appearance of self-righteousness. I know that you want to be known. You don't have to pretend. You can be the real version of you. So that the counterfeit community isn't the flawed one. It's the picture-perfect one, right? Yes, God's people ought to be distinct from the world, right? We ought to love righteousness, fight sin, and yet one of the ways that Jesus calls us to fight sin is by confessing it, right? Not covering it up. One of the ways that we get to be distinct from the world isn't in not having sin, but in how we deal with sin. Not just if it happens, but when it happens. And when John writes that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, he's assuming that we're all going to need the grace of Jesus if we're going to live out this thing in the open like this. Right? The, the gospel is the only door to genuine fellowship, and it's the only thing that makes room for genuine confession in those 
relationships? Are you devoted to a fellowship like that? Are you taking advantage of that confessional freedom in your friendships or your community groups or your family? Do you, do you feel, do, do people feel safe to confess to you? Do people trust that if you come lay God's grace and mercy? And do you know that God meets you with that same forgiveness? Do you know that he's devoted himself to you, not just because of who you are, but, but more often than not, in spite of who you are and what you've done? Should we get to know the truth? So let's, let's practice it together. Let's show up in one another's lives and be devoted to each other in this kind of fellowship, even if it's scary. And it can be scary. But there's nothing but real forgiveness. And as we'll see in just a second, a real love on the other side of confession. All right, we'll read our last chunk here this morning in 1 John. Looking at 1 John 2, 3 through 11. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth isn't in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. More of John saying, like, two opposite things right after the other. You know, like, hey, this isn't a new commandment. It's old, but also it is new. Like, I, I love that. And the commandment that he's referring to is simply to love our brothers. If you sum up everything God calls us to do to love our brothers and sisters, that, that is it, which is a lot harder than it sounds. And John's right. That's not a new thing that God has suddenly revealed to us after Jesus showed up, but the, to actually carry that out. So our third point this morning is this, that the gospel alone creates unconditional love. When I had to confess to my kids on the beach and ask for their forgiveness, I made sure to let them know that my sin was not their fault. Which might sound like common sense stuff, but it's not always that obvious in real life, and especially when you're in the moment. There may have been a million genuinely frustrating things, but my impatience was not their fault or anyone else's fault but my own. I was still commanded to love my kids, even though I was irritated, even though I was probably very hot, even though it was lunchtime, so I was probably a little hangry, all right, which Kelly tells me is a thing that I get from time to time. That's fine. I own it, but so do you. I mean, <laughs> but listen, the, the charge to love my kids doesn't go away just because I'm hangry. Being hangry isn't an excuse for being a jerk, period. Someone acting like a jerk to me is not an excuse for me to be a jerk back to them. That's not how this works. My obedience to his command to love my kids is not dependent on them, all right? Them being nice, obedient, pleasant human beings 100% of the time, or my stomach being full. And that's true for all of us 
in all of our relationships. Our call to love our brothers and sisters is not conditional or somehow someone else's responsibility. And yet it's really easy to say, but I've just had enough. You have no idea what my day was like. He had it coming to him. She's going to treat me that way. I'm going to treat her that way too. She's not going to be nice to me. I'm not going to be nice to her until she's nice to me first. And all the other things that Jesus never actually said, right? But we act like are valid excuses for us to enable our hatred of each other. And I mean hatred. When we decide, either consciously or unconsciously, premeditated or just in the moment, that someone is no longer deserving of our love, and we treat them accordingly, and then we say that that's okay, or we have an excuse for that. You cannot want to call it hate, but all I know is it's the opposite of love. By this we may know that we are in Christ, John writes. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure Jesus' love for others wasn't conditional. Against, spit on, betrayed, abandoned, literally carrying the burdens of the world on his shoulders. He didn't use his circumstances or the attitudes of the people around him as an opportunity to withhold love or to respond back in kind. In fact, conditional love is actually the opposite of the gospel, right? That again, he loves us not because of who we are or because of what we've done, but often in spite of it. The gospel doesn't just free us to be real people, but it enables us to love real people even when it's hard. Notice that John doesn't address the relational circumstances that might lead a person to want to hate a brother or sister. He doesn't talk about how devastating it might be for for the people getting uh, his letter to be kicked out of their synagogues and then abandoned by the people they thought were in it with them for the long haul. That's because John's not saying that people aren't frustrating. People are frustrating. He's not saying that if you claim to know Jesus and, and you're sad or mad or disappointed by somebody that you're a liar or that you don't get the gospel. That comes with the territory of being in fellowship with real people, right? It's just a human thing. And those feelings are oftentimes the right responses to that stuff. What he is saying, though, is that hatred is never the right response. Withholding love from someone never accomplishes what we think it's going to do, but it sure is an easy way to fool ourselves into thinking that we care a lot. Discredit, we dehumanize fellow image bearers, brothers and sisters in Christ in the name of caring too much about truth or justice or even love itself. We care too much to let them get away with it, whatever offense they've committed. But the eyes that we think we're, we're seeing so clearly with to render that judgment, John says, have been blinded by darkness. We think we're building a better community, but we're, we're laying stumbling blocks in the way of people knowing Jesus. We think we know a better way forward, but, but we've just traded the way of Jesus to walk a road paved with guilt and shame and condemnation and fear. All the gotcha moments and the one-ups and the one arguments on social media or whatever, but it's all for a good cause. I just care about this too much to let it go. These are the marks of a counterfeit community. In the church, it can take a more subtle, more socially acceptable form. 
a little bit. We know everyone in Christ can belong. We know that everyone is forgiven, right? But we begrudge certain people's presence at the table. I'd actually be able to get something out of this if this person wasn't here. I'd be more patient, more kind. I wouldn't get so angry all the time if this person wasn't around as much. And so I kind of wish that they weren't. We never finish that part, but that's what we really mean. We say that to ourselves while we're sitting in the same room as them or in line, the same line for communion on Sundays. I was talking to a buddy this week, and he told me that someone asked him, if the way you live is a product of what you believe, then what do you believe? And this morning, I'm wondering how many of us believe that God merely tolerates us. That he forgives because he has to. It's the faithful and just thing, right? But that he has no real desire to do good to you beyond that. No real affection. His obligation is fulfilled. Now try not to bother him too much. And when we hear John say that if we obey God's command to love each other, then God's love is perfected, we, we interpret that to mean that God's making us pick up his slack. That his love is imperfect and we we have to do for others what he doesn't really even want to do for us. Because if we ask ourselves, man, we, we really think God begrudges our presence at his table sometimes. He's devoted to us, but only because he has to be. But in reality, the love that God has put in us is perfect. It only becomes imperfect when we let it stop with us. When we filled up with the love that God has poured out into us after looking upon us and our own sin and our own weakness and all the ways that we are frustrating, right? When we look then at anyone else and say, but you don't deserve that. I, I just can't want good for you right now. That's when God's love becomes imperfect. That's now happening according to John. This darkness that's passing away, this light that's shining through, that's not you getting woke or being anti-woke. Right? It's not you getting better at assessing whether someone else is keeping the commands of God. The darkness that's passing away in you is the stuff that blinds you from seeing yourself as clearly as the Lord does and keeps you from believing that he loves you anyway. The true light that's shining through is the gospel, exposing every sin and every poor excuse that you've made for sin in your life and the darkness has not overcome it. Your sin can't drive his grace away. What should really be exposed uh, as the gospel exposes you over the course of your years isn't merely a laundry list of reasons why God shouldn't love you. But what should be exposed to us is God's ever-growing, unconditional capacity to love that never stops wanting you, that never stops wanting to work for your good anyway. Who would want to devote themselves to a people like us? He would. Why? I don't know. He's good. And he's gracious. And he's loving. He loves us, as Deuteronomy says, because he loves us. It's unconditional. Let it be known that, that God's devotion to his people isn't a begrudging one in spite of who we are or what we've done. It's a magnificently loving devotion that wants and works for our good even when we're at our worst. And that, that love, church, is the love that is in us. And it should mark our fellowship in a way where we don't merely tolerate people. 
because of Jesus. But we want them because of Jesus. We don't merely put up with them because of the gospel, but we want and we work for their good because of the gospel. May we not walk around in this fellowship as if we're all waiting to be loved before we can start loving one another. As if our capacity to want and to work for the good of your brother and sister is hinged on them, on their obedience or on their love towards you first. Your capacity to love unconditionally is hinged on how well your soul is acquainted in this moment with the real, initiating, unconditional, ever-present love of a real Jesus to a real person like you. And it's this gospel alone that can create a fellowship marked by unconditional love between its members because the gospel alone can rescue us from counterfeit community. There's no longer an excuse to not love. And yet, there is an unending fountain of grace to come back to time and time and time again when we forget and we will forget and we will remember and we will forget and we will remember and this is what we get to do as a church community. We get to do that together. And we'll do it to the praise of his perfect love in the completion of our joy together in Christ. And it's this act of remembering that we get to do every week when we gather together here. And every week at this particular time, I want to invite the band can come back up. Jesus called us to remember him every time that we broke bread and took the cup. And so it's It's not surprising that one of the things that we see the followers do in Acts 2, one of the things they're devoted to is the breaking of the bread. One of the last things that Jesus did before he died was to call his followers around a table together for a meal. Followers, many of them had little or nothing to do with one another apart from their commonality in Jesus, the call of Christ. A table that did not belong to them. And a meal that would serve as a reminder of God's devotion to his people through the body and the blood of Jesus, symbolized by bread and wine, symbolized this morning in the uh, lovely wafers and the juice that are in these little plastic cups up here. And so I want to invite you all into a time of response, repenting, reflecting, remembering. Uh, And there are many ways you can do this. Whatever God has stirred in you this morning, looking at the questions up there, if you want to pray, you can do that at your seat. There'll be folks back there who would love to pray with you. Uh, I'll be right back here against the wall if anybody wants to pray as well. Or just talk. There's a prayer bench over there. If you need to get on your knees, go for that. If you want to sing with the band as they sing, sing with the band. And also this morning, we get to celebrate communion, an invitation to the Lord's table. And so if you're a believer in here this morning, that's for you. If you're a a believer who has reflected on his own heart and believes that everyone else who comes up here is also part of God's table and that you are, not because of you and what you've done and who you are, but because of what Jesus has accomplished, his body broken for you, his blood shed for you, that's what that is a symbol of. And we get to celebrate that together, invite you to come and participate in that with us this morning. So uh, let me pray, and then I'm going to turn it back over to the band as they lead us in song. Father God, thank you for this morning. 
Thank you for your radical devotion to us, that you don't begrudge any single one of your sons or daughters, but you've built a family entirely on the unconditional love that you've not just demonstrated as an example for us, but that you have given to us as a substitute and also as just a, a fountain, a well to enjoy with you and with one another. Thanks for making a way for us to, to know a real Jesus, to be real people, and to know what real love truly is through Christ. Whatever, God, you might be stirring in the hearts of these people who have gathered, um, I pray that they would listen that the loudest voice would not be the, the guilt, the shame, the pride, the self-righteousness, but they would humble themselves. They would listen to your Holy Spirit, cling to Jesus, and then sing in their hearts how great you are. Father, we love you. Thank you for this time. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.